Hi everyone, and welcome to the first episode of An Outside Opinion. This is a series of interviews I will conduct about Ukraine in a global context. My name is Oleg Rybachuk, and I am the host of the Center of United Actions Initiative. My guests are international experts, diplomats, and researchers, and they are representing states with successful democracies and with a working system of checks and balances. They know a lot about Ukraine and have expensive expertise in global politics, security, and the work of democratic institutions. Today I'm talking with a man who dedicated 12 years of his life and career to Ukraine. He knows everything about our path to Europe. This is David Stulik, a former long-term EU press attaché in Ukraine and now senior analyst of European Value Center for Security Policy. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for your invitation and for these very nice words of my, about me. As we are speaking today on 337th day of a war, every day in Ukraine we have this count. Coming back, can you remember when the war started, did you believe in this three days and Kiev will fall as many of not only Russian but Western analytical centers predicted? Or you believe that Ukraine will actually fight back? Do you remember this? I perfectly do remember it because on 24th of February, when that full-scale aggression of Russia started, I was in Kiev. And uh, I was uh, feeling these kind of uh, moods and determination of people, of my friends, of my colleagues, uh, so strongly that I didn't have any doubts that Ukraine would fight for its uh, survivor. And uh, I was pretty sure that uh, the Ukrainian army or the whole society will definitely not back down and will not surrender themselves. And actually, the war started uh, eight years ago in 2014, and it was already a kind of, a, I would say, a surprise for Putin and for Russians that uh, they were not welcomed with the salt and bread, even in eastern Ukraine, and that even the local people were turning against them. Even the Russian speakers uh, at the end uh, realized the essence of the Russian regime. So that's why... I was pretty sure that, uh, you know, the Ukrainians who have experienced quite a lot of, you know, democratic life in, in their country, be them Ukrainian speakers or Russian speakers, wouldn't be willing to give it up, to surrender it to such a brutal force. So basically, I was quite, uh, you know, convinced that for you, for Ukrainians, this is the survival war, that it's either you or them. And uh, in such a circumstances, you simply cannot pull out and leave the battlefield. So I was quite sure and I was not so, let's say, um, positive that you could defend your country so effectively. So here is my kind of a full respect to all those who are in your armed forces. Coming back again to 2014, that time of Russia occupied Crimea, uh, how much better you believe Ukraine was prepared uh, to this invasion in 2022. I mean, not only army, but probably government, civil society, diplomats. Uh, how can you compare readiness of Ukraine today or last year, actually, and in 2014? This is like a huge difference. It seems like it's more than, a, let's say, a decade, more than a century to compare these two moments, 2014 and 2022, because 
if I can start with the army, by then, when the Ukrainian uh, government sent some military units to eastern part of Ukraine, they were immediately, you know, surrendering themselves to the even local population, to the civilians. So basically, you didn't have any proper army. Those were the volunteers who formed these voluntary battalions who started to fight for Ukraine. And back in 2022, you had an army which was very much... Uh, uh, determined with a high fighting spirit, uh, well, quite relatively well equipped with uh, Western, some of the Western weapons uh, that was organized on the completely new principles. So that's like a day and night if you compare these two dates. And of course, the society and the people uh, have fully lost their illusions that they still might have had before 2014. So that helped them to start the preparations for even more pressure or more aggression from Russia. And most of the people in Ukraine didn't have any illusions that even after 2014, Russia would stop uh, in Donbass, uh, in a part of Donbass and in Crimea, unlike Western leaders who wanted to believe that uh, it would be enough for Russia to occupy these two parts of Ukraine. So Ukrainians were deliberately preparing themselves for a more decisive clash with Russia because you didn't have any illusions. And if there was no COVID, uh, Ukrainian economy was already growing pretty fast. The trade with the EU was growing by 25-30% each year. So the EU was the main trading partner uh, before 2022, unlike before 2014. So you've done a huge fundamental reforms changes that helped you to be better prepared for, for that uh, full-scale aggression, unlike it was in 2014 when it came as a kind of a surprise for you. Thank you. How did institutions, in your opinion, manage to hold on after the full-fledged um, uh, invasion? I mean, is this the fact that the, the government uh, continued to function rather efficiently? Is this the result of reforms the, the kind of strong institutions, maybe human factor, what do you believe led to the fact that the whole system didn't collapse? There are a number of factors, so there is no single one. And I would start with the, I would say, from my point of view, the most important one, it's a social factor, that all the people, be them in the civil society, in the government, or in the private sector, they all felt to be Ukrainian citizens. So that what created this kind of a feeling of unity because that brutal threat from Russia was threatening everybody. So then the people, the citizens, realized that they are in the various sectors, in the various positions, so that every, any of them is fighting at their own private front, be it the state, be it the private business, or be it the civil society. So that kind of helped to cement the society. And I was... Pleasantly surprised when I was in Kiev last uh, year in December, at the end of the year, when I heard from many of my interlocutors when they, ref when they were saying, this is our state, this is our government, not referring to personalities, but to the institutions. And, you know, the Ukrainian history is, of, uh, is full of animosities between the people, society and the state. The state was always the enemy for the people in Ukraine. So that's why you were developing alternative, let's say, institutions, alternative relations. But suddenly, people believe in the state. They believe in it as a sort of a protective umbrella, if you can say it like that. 
And even uh, very interesting facts uh, that uh, Ukraine lost one third of its GDP last year, but the level of uh, revenues from income tax increased. So people started to pay taxes, you know, uh, to, to the state. So there is a trust in the state. And uh, then I would also say that to a certain degree, the reforms helped a bit. The reforms that were uh, pro uh, designed together with Western partners. So the public sector has been open to young professionals, to people with uh, Western education. And these people brought to the public sector uh, the standards and procedures and the way of thinking that is uh, typical rather to modern democratic societies than to the old post-Soviet oligarchic state. So that was a kind of a mixture of different factors that helped to you know, create quite a strong uh, structure, state structure that is serving the people, not those who have the power, but the citizens. Yeah, and we really feel that we are part of European family and the West or Europe is as united as never before. But you know that Putin counted on something totally opposite. And he was sure that United Europe will, will just, if not collapse, that would be divided. Uh, how long do you think Europe can stay so much united? Or what can shake this unity? I think that Putin made a huge miscalculation when uh, he underestimated uh, the basic values on which the European Union and Western democracies are based on. Because if we uh, were disunited, we would somehow uh, sacrifice and resign on our basic values. So he attacked the essence of our, let's say, civilization, of our political culture, the way how our economies work. So we can't, we can't simply stay aside and see him also destroying our, let's say, world, our, let's say, cultural habits. So this is the major unifying factor because we all felt endangered. Yes, some of us in Central Europe or in Baltics, we feel more directly threatened. So that's why we see a much higher support for Ukraine in terms of humanitarian assistance or military assistance. But you see that even countries that are far from Ukraine, Spain, uh, even now Morocco or some other, let's say, thousand member states of the EU are helping because they were challenged by Putin. So that was a huge miscalculation of Putin. He thought that because he doesn't believe in these values, he doesn't believe in these principles of democratic society. So they are kind of estranged to him. So he thinks that uh, the Europeans or the uh, people living in democratic countries will easily give up on these values and principles like he has given up. So that was the kind of a thing that uh, led to this kind of a unified resistance of the West. And I think it will be there for quite, quite long time. As long as there is no a black sheep in our family, as long as there are no countries which will have also authoritarian tendencies. Yes, there is a case now of Hungary that is, stops to resemble a democratic uh, society, democratic country. But we see at the same time that there is a strong pressure of other EU or NATO member states on Hungary to be again uh, acting and behaving according to democratic rules. So as long as there are no more countries like that, or there is no strong group of these countries, I think the West will stay united for quite a long time. Yeah, but European uh, integration, European perspective, or now like perspective of membership in EU uh, for Ukraine, 
totally depend on success of reforms. And you know, many government officials used to say, because we are at war already eight years, used to say that, well, war is not the best time for reforms. Do you believe that we can have successful reforms in times of war? I believe that, and I think this uh, the way of implementing reforms now as fast as possible is one of the major factors that would make Ukraine Ukraine society, Ukraine economy, Ukraine public sector, Ukraine political uh, system, and the army much stronger than without the reforms. Yes, it will take some time to implement these reforms, but the results will yield additional incomes, additional funding for the army, first of all. So actually, it should be a part of your defense strategy, part of your resilience strategy to do these reforms as soon as possible so that you don't waste you know, time and resources and people in an unreformed uh, public sector or unreformed judiciary or un uh, unreformed army. So basically, yes, the war times are not good uh, for implementing reforms because you have other priorities. You have to defend yourself. But whenever you have certain time, you have to work on these reforms. And they consist of two things. A, adopting legislation. And there are no obstacles for Ukrainian parliament to adopt the laws that would correspond to the EU standards. Second, uh, B, it's more complicated, it's the implementation of these laws. Yes, there might be some problems with funding, with resources for these reforms. But still, it's also an investment for Ukraine uh, to implement these reforms. Yes, it will cost you maybe some money that might be needed for purchasing, or I don't know, some armed uh, vehicles or some ammunition. But in the midterm and long term, it will generate more resources that you would spend on these reforms. So it's a ref reforms are the investment into the future. Uh, they will bring the dividends. And reforms are the things that people want. That's what even many soldiers are fighting for. They don't want to see Ukraine to be the same as before the Russian aggression after the Ukraine victory. They want to see another Ukraine, new Ukraine, modern Ukraine. And if Ukraine remains the old one with the oligarchic influence unreformed, it could be claimed that it will be actually a part of the Putin's victory, of Russia's victory, because you are fighting for your new future. And the new future means reforms, reforms, reforms. Right. Um democracy and war. You know, at times of war, we quite often we have no choice but to, if not to agree, but then to understand that certain freedoms, certain privileges, certain democratic rights has to be sacrificed, at least temporarily. What do you believe is the biggest challenge for democracy in times of war? I'm thinking about these things uh, every day. The most difficult would be to draw a line where it is, uh, let's say, the defense of basic freedoms, freedom of speech, uh, political rights of opposition, and when there is a, on the other side of that bordering line are uh, the national uh, defense and security interests. Because journalists, for example, can't write about everything they see and they would like to write because that might be sometimes, you know, a subject to the strategic importance of Ukraine. If, the, for example, the government starts to limit the rights of opposition 
and I would be uh, justifying it by the need to have a uniform, let's say, political representation and single information policy. That would infringe the normal political rights of opposition that are normal in a democratic uh, society without a war. But again, sometimes it could be so that during these political discussions, some, let's say, state secrets would be revealed or some strategic information might be revealed. So it is always very, very difficult to determine where that borderline goes. I think it probably needs to be implemented. I mean, the, the attempts to find this line, they, that need, these efforts have to be done case by case. So I don't think there is any single uniformed uh, kind of a blueprint that would help us to define these lines. And I think this is also an exceptional situation that Ukraine wants to be a democratic country. The society wants to keep the democratic institutions and to have a war. And uh, there were not so many countries, democratic countries that were defending themselves and managed to keep the level of uh, the work of democratic institutions so high as you are doing right now. Because in even democratic countries, there are laws on martial, uh, there, there are laws on martial law uh, that would uh, prevent certain, let's say, expressions of freedom to be examined. And you are still trying your best as a society. And, and I hope, I want to believe that also as a government. But here, I think that the society, the public opinion is the strongest kind of a guarantee that the democratic principles, democratic rules of, of, of the game would be preserved. So you are also kind of a testing ground for the other countries. And I think that's why so many eyes from the uh, democratic world are now looking at Ukraine as a sort of a pioneer. So we really want to believe that you would pass this uh, democratic test. I absolutely agree. We just last year, we analyzed Ukrainian history. 30 years of independence of Ukraine. And we came to obvious conclusion. Every Ukrainian president, I mean, not figuratively, but literally every Ukrainian president tried to control, um, to increase his control over legislative and executive powers. How can we make cabinet of ministers and parliament more effective, more independent under present situation? I think that for that, you need a very uh, deliberate and sophisticated system of checks and balances. So that there will be always some counter forces that would be limiting uh, these uh, attempts to uh, seize more power, to increase the political monopoly, uh, to get uh, even more control of or judiciary. So again, this is mostly about the democratic reforms defining the relations between different democratic institutions, uh, developing and strengthening the various, I would say, regulatory bodies when it comes to like uh, media sector or judicial sector. Uh, there should be more empowerment of, the, for example, the professional, uh, professional categories or groups like judges. But again, judges have to be uh, kind of filtered on their moral integrity. So once these groups, professional groups, are somehow empowered, they will be the first defenders of their rights and of their, let's say, position. If there are some attempts of uh, executive bodies to take away some competencies or to put a pressure on judiciary, for example. So again, it's mainly about designing the state, uh, let's say, 
of the uh, democratic bodies, their their relations, uh, and again, independency of them, like the central bank, uh, as I said, the, uh, the regulator of the media, and so on and so forth. So this is, a, and, and there are no single blueprints uh, from other countries, because these systems of checks and balances are different, different countries. So you have to design your own system, and you are designing it by making mistakes, by trials and errors. But I think if you look at the history of Ukraine uh, since 1991, uh, you see a progress of that. So that you are moving farther and farther to a more effective system of checks and balances. And again, I would stress it once again, the people, the public opinion is the key factor that is pushing for these for the proper definition of the power division within within your political and public sector. So the people are the best guarantor that uh, you would eventually be successful because the people want to see such a country. They want to live in such a let's say democratic world. Freedom House has identified the spread of authoritarianism as the major threat, major challenge to democracy. In your country, in Czechia. Your president, Zeman, he really tried to concentrate much more power than he had as per constitution, but he failed. This is not the case in Hungary. In Hungary, we can see, as you already have mentioned, we can see that member of EU with well, all obligations, with all declared common values, uh, Orban is concentrating and he is now more authoritarian than democratic ruler. So what helped you in Czechia to avoid the scenario which we observe now in Hungary? I will start with Hungary because then it will be easier to explain why this didn't happen and didn't succeed in the Czech Republic. Basically in Hungary, Orban managed to mobilize Hungarians behind him uh, using a nationalistic rhetorics. And that gave him a consent of the society to do some undemocratic moves and steps basically destroying uh, independent media, uh, fragmenting political opposition and putting pressure also on NGOs. And uh, these are like three pillars uh, that more or less worked properly in the Czech case. We have seen that media were very critical by Zeman. And of course, he was not a prime minister, so did, he didn't have uh, any executive powers that would help him, for example, to close down some media or to put uh, administrative or fiscal pressure on uh, media. Uh, also, the civil society mobilized itself against uh, Zeman uh, and against authoritarian, let's say, tendencies. We have had this fantastic movement of civic uh, activists called One Million Moments for Democracy, which gathered uh, for the first time since 1989 more than a million people protesting against these authoritarian tendencies in the city, in the center of the city of Prague. And then the political opposition, they managed and actually they were kind of forced to be more united. And as a result of that push for the unity, uh, we have now five uh, opposition, uh, formerly opposition parties in the government. So we have a coalition consisting of five different center and uh, right wing parties. So the political opposition also played its proper role that uh, helped to prevent, you know, these uh, 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 authoritarian tendencies. So that's the major difference between Hungary and the Czech Republic. 
And I think in Hungary, the problem is also the Hungarian history that the Hungarians still uh, feel kind of an offense uh, still since the time of the First World War. They feel to be surrounded by more or less the hostile nations. And these historical uh, legacies help to mobilize and to provide the anti-democratic steps of Orban with more legitimacy, unlike in our case. Post-war Ukraine, Ukraine after the victory. How we can foresee effective model of balancing Ukrainian expectations, and they are huge, with Western, I'm not saying even European, but there is also American and other countries, uh, willingness, experience to build up that country of dream, which we all would like to see. On what platform, how that can be combined? Because there are now many initiatives, as you perfectly know. But what do you believe is the way to go here? As we speak today, and it's uh, Friday, uh, 27th of January, uh, there was a multi-donor platform created yesterday, which is a major, I would say, step forward towards this post-war reconstruction of Ukraine, which will involve G7 countries, uh, it would involve different international financial institutions, as well as the government of Ukraine. So there is a very, I would say, a sophisticated setup of different bodies, uh, different institutions that would be participating in that uh, uh, reconstruction endeavor. And uh, symptomatically, uh, that multi-donor platform would have, will have two secretariats, one in Kiev and one in Brussels. Of course, the Ukrainians wanted to have the secretariat in, uh, in Kiev, but there was, a, I would say, a little bit of mistrust of their Western partners who have their experience with the previous and maybe also with the current Ukrainian political elites. And this kind of a level of mistrust uh, led to the fact that the second secretariat will be in Brussels. So we'll see how this would work. But there is another, I would say, a very important and conceptual difference in approaches towards reconstruction in Ukraine and in the West. While in the West or in the EU and uh, other Western democracies, there is an understanding of the reconstruction process in terms of simply rebuilding physically, rebuilding physically roads and uh, infrastructure, housing and so on. In Ukraine, there is a strong demand, not for just reconstruction, but for a full reset uh, of full modernization of the country that would go beyond physical rebuilding of, of infrastructure. You need and you are calling for reconstruction, reconstruction in quotation marks, of uh, public institutions. Uh, you are calling for a spiritual uh, values uh, reconstruction. You simply want to see a complete refurbishment of your daily life. So these are not, let's say, the latest technologies that would be used in energy sector, but you want to simply build even the new interpersonal relations uh, to kind of change the social life. And this is something that uh, the West uh, doesn't understand properly. So there is a belief that it will be enough, if I say it so brutally, to pump there couple of hundreds of billions of euros and to do this reconstruction and things will be sorted out. No, and you said it, that Ukrainians don't want to see the return to the state that was there before the war. They don't want to see, to, see, uh, to, to live in the same system with oligarchs, 
with the monopoly of political power in a system that doesn't have political parties per se, ideological political parties. You, the political parties are just basically, you know, the kind of a groups of interests or groups of people who defend uh, organized interests. So this is what you want to see as a result of the first victory of Ukraine and the second, a proper, proper and deep reconstruction of Ukraine. And that reconstruction of Ukraine, in your kind of understanding, should be based on three things. Yes, physical info, re renovation, recovery, then European integration, and third, modernization, that you would be using the most modern and the latest technologies, that you would be also kind of a playground, test ground, for uh, testing new innovative and creative solutions when it comes to energy, for example, housing or, or mobility. So these are the things that are sometimes not properly understood on both sides. And there is a kind of a mismatch of our concepts of the Ukrainian reconstruction and recovery. Yeah, I was repeating same things in Washington and all the international conference I attended. So we have to go on. It's absolutely clear, you are right. Ukrainians do not want just reconstruction of that oligarchic Soviet-type uh, heavy industries economy uh, which we used to have. No, 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 no discussions here. And I'm pretty sure that Ukrainian society will not allow if there would be even attempts to, to reconstruct the, the country which uh, we just uh, saw uh, after collapse of the Soviet Union. It's not that kind of country. But coming back to Ukrainian government, uh, I was Deputy Prime Minister for European Integration. I was coordinating uh, Western uh, technical assistance. I know what kind of uh, headache it is. Coordination of international assistance. Who should do it? Uh, what government institutions? What what are risks that there would be a few uh, centers of coordination from Ukraine? Do you believe that that's a risk? Or what institutions you believe should be utterly responsible for building that uh, Ukraine of our dream? You Ukrainians have one very strong uh, uh, feature, and that's the way how you work and act in a decentralized way. You are a society that doesn't need leaders. Uh, sometimes people know exactly what they need to do, where they have to be. But with regard to the reconstruction process, it needs to be centrally planned, controlled, and executed. Uh, because otherwise, you can just end up, for example, with roads being re rebuilt in uh, hundreds of different ways according to different uh, standards and norms. No, you need to have a one center that where the decisions would be made, where the programming of the assistance will be done. And of course, always in a cooperation with the donors, with the, your Western partners. So I would opt for creating exactly a kind of a new institution or a new uh, environment of institutions that would be dealing solely with the reconstruction. I don't believe that current ministries would be able to assume that role. No, there must be something higher above them, some kind of uh, authority that would be able, for example, to give certain tasks to Ministry of Infrastructure, to the Ministry for Regional Development. But these ministries cannot act on their in their own individual 
uh, autonomous ways. No, there must be a very, very clear system of supervision. And this is something that is not so naturally close to Ukrainian hearts. But uh, this is something that, uh, for example, was the case in Western Balkans after the uh, wars in former Yugoslavia. That was also partly the case uh, with regard to post-war reconstruction and renovation of Germany. So I think that uh, there is so much of, let's say, track record and experience gained from other countries and from other post-war situations that indeed there is now no time for you to start inventing new mechanisms or new ways how these things could be dealt with. And I think this is also true for the donors, uh, that there is a kind of a clear understanding that we should also use many of those mechanisms that we have used even before to use the same, let's say, international banks like European Bank for uh, European Investment Bank or European Bank for Reconstruction and uh, Recovery (EBRD). Uh, so again, uh, there must be a clear vision on both sides how that reconstruction process should be implemented. So I would be very, very cautious to have a decentralized system with many powers diluted to different actors and bodies. Even after Russia is completely defeated militarily, it will still not put up with the fact that there is neighbor Ukraine. They will never forgive us as we will never forgive them. So even if we build up this effective modern dream country, uh, how we can feel secure? where we can find uh, security. Is it membership in NATO, which I personally believe in? And what should we do with then our relative, our family of political leaders in EU? Because there are some which are clearly prepared to compromise on security issue and which believe that they can deal with Putin, that can reach some agreements, oh, well, France, uh, Germany, Hungary, you can name others. What do you believe is the way for Ukraine to make sure that never again would have some meaning? Let me start with saying a simple, let's say, observation that Ukraine and Ukrainian society is a society that looks forward to the future. And when you listen to Russian discussions and Russian debates, it's the society that looks backwards into their past. And actually, if you look at the structure of economy, your economy is getting prepared for the future developments while Russians are not. So definitely, economically, Ukraine will be much stronger than Russia which would allow you to have more resources spent on, for example, the army and other military and security uh, uh, expenses. And I think that Ukraine would need to get used to the fact that there, there is an unpredictable and sometimes an aggressive neighbor who gets very aggressive when it feels strong. And I think that Russia moves in these kind of uh, cycles that uh, short periods of weaknesses are then replaced with the strong periods of perceived strength, and then the Russian aggressive behavior comes to the surface. So I think that you would need to be in a, some sort of a situation like Israel, that you would need to get used to it, that you have that unpredictable neighbor who can, you know, start a new conflict. And for that conflict, you will have to be always ready. 
And yes, here, the NATO membership would help you a lot because you will be then covered by that kind of a security umbrella. Uh, but here I'm kind of not a skeptical, but more realistic. And I even see now that NATO is not a certain monolith. Yes, it keeps the unity, but there are some countries that would love to move on with a different speed. A week ago, there was a statement of nine countries, basically from Central Europe and from the Baltics, supported by uh, the great United Kingdom. That, and they declared that they want to move uh, faster than the other countries with the delivery of weapons. And for example, here in the Czech Republic, when you speak with uh, security and military experts or soldiers, they say that our future security is very much connected to the Ukrainian one, that uh, they can't foresee or they cannot uh, imagine a kind of a security structure in Central Europe without Ukraine. So that's why there are also these discussions that similar kind of alliances like uh, London, Warsaw, Kiev could be created. And uh, it is in our Czech and Central European interest to have Ukraine on board. So we are already now actually seeking to strengthen our military cooperation with the Ukrainian army or with Ukrainian defense industry. And we see it as a kind of a future. So I believe that we would see probably more regional-based initiatives in terms of uh, security structures or kind of uh, institutional setup which might, which will not be mutually exclusive with the NATO membership. So this is also what the Ukrainian government tries to get these security guarantees from a number of important countries. But in practical terms, increasing the military cooperation, strengthening your army, strengthening your economy, I would say is one of the key uh, steps that you need to do in order to be to feel safe relatively safe from uh, from Russia. Oh, thank you, David. It's an enormous pleasure talking to you. And I thank all our listeners. And I also recommend you to visit centerua.org to learn more about us. I also invite you to subscribe to the center's YouTube channel so that you are never missing the show. See you in the next episode.